Columbia's Counseling Services Office is stretched thin amid the COVID-19 pandemic, and some students say they are on the receiving end. I'll tell you about the toll the pandemic has taken on students' mental health and how Counseling Services is trying to keep up with their needs. Also, hear about how the music department has found a new way to stay in tune and in sync while staying safe. Up next, you'll want to make sure you have something in your stomach before you learn about these Black-owned food services that bring love from their kitchen to your home. Later, the Columbia Chronicle is saying goodbye to its director of photography, Camila Forte. Keep listening as we reflect back on her time at the Chronicle and where you can see her photos next. This is Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Paige Barnes. Accessing Columbia's counseling services during the pandemic has been a struggle for some students. This is concerning because according to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report by the CDC, nearly three in four 18 to 24-year-olds have reported adverse mental or behavioral health symptoms related to the pandemic. This is also the same age group with the highest percentage of those who have seriously considered suicide. The number of Columbia students asking for counseling services since the pandemic has not been shared, but the Associate Dean of Student Health and Support says staff members have noticed the pandemic has exacerbated students' feeling of stress, loneliness, and anxiety. Here to talk about what's been happening with the Counseling Services Office is staff reporter Matus Janik. The reason why Counseling Services Office is struggling to meet students' needs is that ever since the pandemic and generally even just during the pandemic itself, They've been seeing a higher frequency of students because obviously they swapped to telemental health services and that's offering, you know, ease of access for students who maybe just went back home or still are on campus and don't feel comfortable going in person. So they're starting to see more students and maybe a higher frequency there. But also, you know, since September, Columbia's Counseling Services staff has been without a director and it currently operates with two therapists and an administrative assistant, as well as two graduate student interns for the 2020 and 2021 school year. So I think that's like two student interns for, you know, one each semester, you know, and besides that, in a February 18th email to the Chronicle, we actually kind of got a response from Dean of Students, John Paul Ryan, saying that the department is still budgeting for four therapists and one coordinator, including one director and an administrative assistant, but uh, they're still looking for that. So right now there's job openings uh, on a careers website, specifically Columbia's careers website. And it's currently listed for a staff therapist, a coordinator of counseling services, a director of counseling services, among all those positions. But really, like the director position is the one that's primarily been there from, I think, October 12th, uh, 2020. So they've been without a director now since October of last year. Wow, that's a lot to unpack right there with, you know, being understaffed and the rise in students' needs. Can you touch upon the current state of students' mental health and how it's been affected by the pandemic? If we're going to talk about, like, statistics right now, I know that right now we did include some reports from the Chronicle of Higher Education, which actually uses some research from the institutes like uh, New America and Third Way. Uh, they surveyed around 1,000 college students in both August and December, and they found that in those surveys that 73% of students between the ages of 18 and 24 
reported some or significant concerns with their mental health. If I were to make an appointment right now, would I know that there are longer times um, to wait or what can I expect? Psychologists recognize this. Uh, obviously, if you go to the Counseling Services website, they'll have a section under make an appointment and it's folded out for you and it'll say your needs are important to us due to high demands. There is a delayed availability. So they already kind of, you know, that's the first two sentences they have there. So they already kind of recognize that fact immediately off the bat. Sometimes, you know, the student doesn't necessarily need to meet with a therapist. They'll meet with a student relations person from that office to kind of talk with them and maybe just figure out, you know, do they need a long form therapy? Is this a crisis related issue? Because right now the office is kind of operating on a crisis response model. So we're talking about how basically we're not looking at long form therapy. We're more looking at like issues that we can solve in maybe one to two sessions or even something that's even just crisis related. So like a mental breakdown or even things that are along those lines. That's interesting because I know that when I started attending Columbia, I knew I was told that I would get six counseling sessions included in tuition per semester. So a total of 12 for the academic year. Do you know if that's still being offered? From what I've seen and what I've heard, yes, that is still being offered. So you are still technically allowed those you know, appointments and that is still you know, allowed for any student like you are wholeheartedly allowed for that. But I think right now with the situation and definitely with the pandemic and how the office is being managed, uh, there might just be a tough time getting in contact with people. And that's why you kind of see this relationship with student relations and counseling services that, you know, one, you know, social workers and therapists and whatnot and counselors, they're just trying to like work together and help students right now. And they kind of recognize that, you know, counseling services right now is not at what it used to be and maybe not at its best position telemental health treatment. So it's basically just anything kind of like over Zoom or video call. I know there's different programs out there, but the specific programs need to have a HIPAA or FERPA compliant platform. So it's not just Zoom like what we're talking on right now. It's like Zoom for healthcare. It's something more specific so that, you know, stuff like our conversation right now, which is being recorded, it doesn't get backed up to the cloud or something like that. So, you know, when a counselor or therapist is talking with a student, they don't want to have that information leaked or, you know, disclosed anywhere else besides their home PC or the computer that they're working with. How effective is telemental health? What have your sources said about it? Specifically with some of the sources I've talked to in terms of telemental health and how it's been effective, I know that from the students' perspectives that they actually are okay with it. I know that one student source, actually two, another person I may have talked to, but I've been using the story, also have been kind of interested in it and they were honestly kind of open to it at first because it's easier because I know that the one person said uh, specifically in the story Nick Breck uh, he said that basically it's easier to you know have that option because sometimes you may not want to get out of bed or you have those days where it's kind of like a more of a depressive episode or you may have more of a negative feeling going throughout your day and it's just not motivating for you to pull out or kind of want to go to the counseling services office so it's a bit better to kind of have that option there for students to be like, hey, I can just try on my video call. I can talk with this person and kind of just get something off my chest or, you know, have a conversation. Lastly, I want to ask you about the students that you talked with. How have they been impacted by the office being short staffed? More times than not, the students expect that kind of long form therapy. That's the first thing we think about. We think about how many sessions we get. We don't really think about how the office is like operating on. So 
like I said earlier, the office right now is kind of operating on a crisis response model. So it, it doesn't allow for long form therapy. It's kind of like a double edged sword. Like, you know, at one end, the students feel slighted. And I understand that the counseling services office needs more people. And that's sort of the problem there. It's they need more people and the students need more people to talk to. And really what they're working at right now may not meet the students need completely, but you know, they're trying their best. And I think that the people there that are working there right now are really putting their best foot forward. Thank you, Matus, for sharing what you know about counseling services. And I really hope that they're able to get more people so that students can get the help that they need. You can read Matus's full article at columbiachronicle.com. sounds like a live band playing together. But what if I told you these musicians recorded this in separate rooms? You probably wouldn't believe me because we've all been a Zoom call where the sound was out of sync along with a host of other technical glitches. Columbia's music department has introduced a new system that allows classmates to talk to each other in real time without any delay. Here to talk about the new program is staff reporter Amina Sergazina. It's called Moto Audio System. And they came up with it long before the COVID started because, you know, music people, they use different recordings to make the sound better. Uh, And it works the way you would think the studio works. So there are like separate booths for vocalists and separate booths for instrumental to get the cleaner sound. Uh, And Moto System works exactly that way. So music department is using it to prevent spread of COVID because the most important thing is to let vocalists get their full range. And it's very hard to do in a mask because you get like your voice get muffled there. Uh, And there are 14 rooms in which um, four are the main rooms and 10 are smaller rooms for vocalists. So they stand there completely alone without a mask and they can sing their heart out. That sounds really cool. And now, I mean, it's kind of hard to visualize, I think, but when you said that there's separate rooms that, so they're recording, I guess, all of the music and it flows into one system. So who is controlling the recording? So uh, as I said before, there are four main rooms. So the teacher is gonna be in one of those four main rooms with the instrumentals being there, socially distanced and masks. And this is where the Motu system comes in play. So in each of these 14 rooms, the system is um, installed and using that system, they can talk to each other with exactly no latency as if they were standing right next to each other. And um, everything controls teacher and uh, teacher has helpers uh, which is sound engineering technicians, 
uh, and Steve Hadley, I think, also helps because it's kind of complicated for them to use. Can you tell our listeners who is Steve Hadley? Steve Hadley is a technical director of the music department. This program is fairly new. So Amina, what did the music department classes do before they had this? And how new actually is the MOTU system? At the fall, around September, even though they had it in plans uh, long before that. Uh, And the American Roots Ensemble, at the time I was interviewing them, said they were only two weeks into semester of using it. When they were in Zoom class, they could not physically play together because of the Zoom latency and it's very uncomfortable. So what they would do, they would just record themselves and send it to their teacher and their teacher would put it in one coherent file, like make a music out of it. And the students told me they learned a lot about recording themselves. The professor that you interviewed who teaches the American Roots Ensemble, what did he have to say about the new audio system? So the professor's name is Nick Tremulous. He is the professor of uh, American Roots Ensemble. And he says that he enjoys how the system works because it's exactly like a recording studio. Uh, And what's most important is that they get to play together physically uh, in the same room. And it's like an important connection for musicians. What do the students have to say about the program? I interviewed one of the vocalists in American Roots Ensemble. She said that she prefers to be in the same room with the band and playing with them. She's glad that she can do music at the same time with them. But again, the energy is what musicians, I guess, value. Because she said she used to play off of another vocalist when she was in a different ensemble and they would practice together and it's the exchange of ideas and you don't really get that there. Yes, I totally understand that. And as both of us are students who are attending class on Zoom, I can only imagine what it's like to try to play music in sync and of course in tune when there is such Zoom latency. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. And you can read Amina's full article at columbiachronicle.com. Two Black woman-owned businesses are here to spice up your home-cooked meals and turn them into restaurant-quality meals. One studied to be a psychologist and the other a doula, but both ended up going down a completely different career path. Joining me now is Opinions Editor Isaiah Colbert to talk about how these women are following their dreams to provide meal kits for those in need. Chef Chanel actually um, is a graduate from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, um, So she graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in social work, but she kind of realized that cooking is kind of like more of her thing. So um, her background, uh, she started out initially just cooking meals for friends and family just to sort of do that as just like a pastime. But then she realized that, hey, she can make a business out of this. So she got started with that and started Dream Events Catering. 
That's really cool. What type of meal kits can customers order? She has uh, offers like different uh, kinds of things. She'll offer like meal planning, catering, private dining, and even cooking classes. Uh, but when it comes to the um, types of meal kits that she prepares, um, she prepares things going as wide as like a vegan meal prep menu, um, a lot of different Cajun inspired meals or um, dietary meals, like uh, detox uh, kinds of meals, or just all around just um pretty much any well-seasoned, um, just uh, buffet-style uh, types of meals that people uh, would have interest in ordering. That all sounds really good, and I kind of wish that I had eaten before we started recording. Mm. I also want to know, where does she ship them out to? She uh, ships them out to uh, all like areas within Chicago. She has like a, a obviously a delivery and like a shipping fee for all of her stuff, but she also um, goes outside of the bounds of Chicago and even Illinois. Um, at point, she um, will... Again, there'll be an extra charge for that, but she will deliver like to different states. She's even go so far as to go out into uh, go to Mexico and to uh, prepare meals for people there. What goes into creating a meal kit? The meal kits, they're usually, uh, she has like different menus that she has up on her site. Um, What she does is uh, she'll have um, either people choose from the different types of meals that she has uh, available for people or that she'll um, just sort of have the people go to her website and sort of uh, start a consultation, sort of contact us kind of a form that people will fill out. They'll fill out their name, email address, and phone number, and things like that. And they'll just sort of type a message and say, hey, here's my situation. Here's the type of meal I'm kind of looking for. And uh, either um, she'll um, sort of take the expenses and um, buy the groceries herself for the meals, or sometimes the people who are requesting these meals have the meals themselves, and that she'll just prepare it from that way. She started Feed the Kiddos when the pandemic paused her business. Tell me more about that initiative. When she started Feed the Kiddos, it was mostly a response to uh, the Chicago public schools closing during the pandemic and um, sort of they're just kind of needing there to be an alternative for kids to be able to get their meals because sometimes for uh, kids, they mostly get their meals through CPS. So she started this um uh, Feed the Kiddos initiative. Uh, it's mostly funded through donations from volunteers and community organizers like the Bronzeville Distribution Pop-Up Shop and Thankful for Chicago. Uh, so in the same way that she would uh, that she does her stuff with premium event catering, she uh, did that same thing for uh, Feed the Kiddos. In your article, you also talk about another meal delivery service called Take It Off My Plate. Who founded it and who do they cater to? Take it off my plate. It was started by uh, Zuri Thompson as well as uh, her uh, friends, uh, Clinetta Penix and Makisha Russell. Uh, Zuri Thompson uh, started out um, all similarly to Chanel. Uh, didn't start out as a chef necessarily. She started off as a doula, which is a person who sort of helps with um, all stages of like pregnancy when it comes to um, the prenatal kind of care, uh, delivery and postpartum. Uh, so she started off with that, transitioned into doing more of a um, meal kit deli- delivery kind of a service because a lot of it is just uh, finding ways to service the community. And she wanted to expand that idea of being a communal uh, community doula and to uh, find ways to help communities through meals. So uh, that was kind of the inspiration from uh, sort of starting Take It Off uh, My Plate. It was um, inspired by a Chicago Birth Works Collective, which started this um, program called Love Package Project, which distribute different foods and different supplies to um, Black mothers and their um, babies. And also in response to a lot of the racial tensions that was going on in the summer of 2020 and the Black Lives Matter protests, as well as just the need for um, food supplies for the um, those communities. Why is their impact important to Black, Indigenous, and people of color families? Mostly when you think of meal kit services, you think of like the big brand name ones like uh, HelloFresh or Blue Apron or those of the like. And it's kind of more of a luxury kind of a, a meal kit delivery service, which kind of like thinks more to like the top dollar type of people, but it kind of like isn't really in the... Um, 
affordable range for people who might kind of need to have um, meal kit delivery kind of like needs met. And a lot of the times it's also like not their speed when it comes to not only the price, but sometimes the food that's offered, the dietary restrictions put on upon them. So it's really important that these meal kit services are sort of existent because they work to address those specific communities rather than being a blanket kind of a service that is kind of a catch-all. Where can people go to order from Take It Off My Plate? For Take It Off My Plate, they can go to uh, thedoulapart.com. There'll be a whole slew of um, places where it will also show where people can donate, um, different types of uh, services that they also offer besides um, Take It Off My Plate, but they can go there. There'll be a um, part where they can click onto the Take It Off My Plate link. It'll um, show people can donate. It'll show as well um, where people can sign up and request meals at the bottom of the page. Thank you very much, Isaiah, for sharing all of that and more. You can read his full article at ColumbiaChronicle.com. years and over 100 bylines later, the Columbia Chronicle is saying goodbye to its director of photography, Camila Forte. She's covered everything from environmental protests to campus-breaking news to many delicious food reviews. But before we say goodbye officially, joining me now is Camila Forte to talk about how she has captured the good times and how she's developed as a photographer. I started the Chronicle in 2019. I originally applied as a photojournalist and I held that position for a full semester. And then afterwards, um, my second semester at the Chronicle, which was spring of 2020, um, I was promoted to deputy director of photography under former director of photography, Mike Rundle. And then over the summer semester, I started as director of photography which is the position that I've held up to now. I originally applied to the Chronicle, honestly, because it just felt like the right thing to do. Um, I was majoring in photojournalism. I knew the Chronicle had a fantastic reputation and it felt like the next step forward. Although, like I mentioned in my goodbye column, I had very much no idea what I was doing. I was um, completely terrified, but it ended up being a really wonderful experience. If you could give yourself, your younger self, advice before going into the Chronicle and knowing what you know now, what would you say to her? I would tell her, first of all, clearly nobody's going to fire you. Um, I think for the first like three weeks, I was absolutely horrified that I was going to get fired. Um, And I would tell her that, you know, everything works out just like you wanted it to. There's no need for you to be nervous or freak out. It's not a big deal if your SD card corrupts and you learn how to format your cards from then on. Um, And yeah, you buckle in because it's going to be one of your favorite experiences so far. Can you tell me more about the works that you are most proud of? Describe the photos you've taken with them and just the story behind them. When I was a photojournalist for the Chronicle, I worked on a couple of stories that I was very proud of. Um, A lot of them in tandem with former senior video editor, Ignacio Calderon. We did a lot of climate coverage my first semester at the Chronicle, which was one of my favorite things. Environmental reporting is still one of my favorite things. So our whole series and just with the climate strikes, the student strikes, that was really what made me find my passion for Metro reporting and the harder news. And then I did 
my favorite feature story on <laughs> the, the junior Mexican dance ensemble um, in January of 2020. And that's still one of the series that I'm most proud of today. And then as director of photography, I was really incredibly proud of the amount that I was able to direct and shape our election coverage for the presidential election. I had our whole photojournalism desk working simultaneously um, the day of the election and the weeks prior um, talking to a bunch of Chicago voters and getting their thoughts on what was happening, um, which culminated into like a bunch of portraits with reporting um, and a spread in the print issue. And I think as stressful as it was, um, because I was trying to direct everybody to do a cohesive thing all at once, um, it really gave me some fantastic experience into what it really means to kind of like shape the vision of a visual story like that and showed me that I could really photo edit to the extent that I never expected. What have you learned from taking photos in Chicago? Oh my goodness, so much. Um, I always tell people that I think my approach to journalism is very much shaped by the work that I've done in Chicago itself. Um, this city is an incredible city. It is a very socially active city and a very community focused city. Um, so I think more than anything, I've learned what it takes to gain the respect of a community and what it means to do truly impactful local reporting. I mean, I don't think you need to look very far, right? Um, the week that we're <laughs> recording this, um, all of the, the incredible coverage of the vaccine um, <laughs> violations essentially that are happening is being covered by Block Club and stuff like that. So you learn really early on that good reporting is made through on the ground work and kind of this grunt work that um, is not as glamorous <laughs> as what you imagine for journalism, but really creates what matters and surfaces the stories that overall go to make the most important headlines. What will you miss most about The Chronicle? Besides doing food reviews with me, what will you miss most? <laughs> I mean, I think I'll miss editing. I'll miss photo editing. I'll miss working with the incredible photojournalists that make up our team. I think the ideation and eventual producing of stories is what I love the most, kind of seeing this concept come out of their head and watch them work it all the way through. Um, I'll tease a story that Monsheen will be publishing soon um, about uh, a mother who is raising her kids and dealing with all the difficulties of online school and COVID, um, which she's been working on for weeks. So things like that is what I will miss the most is just making sure that stories are both strong and visually beautiful and constantly being surprised by the incredible work that everybody puts in. What is next for Cam's story? What are you doing after <laughs> post, post Chronicle? What is next? So right now I'm working um, with the New York Times Student Journalism Institute as part of their visuals team. And I'm graduating at the end of May and moving back to DC to go to grad school. 
Um, I haven't decided which one yet. <laughs> so that is the scoop you will not be getting from me. But yeah, that's essentially where I'm headed next. That all sounds wonderful. And I wish you the very, very best. And I know that on behalf of the Chronicle, we want to thank you so much for contributing your talents. And we're going to miss you very, very much. Um, I'm trying not to get choked up. And I'm going to miss you personally very, very much. You can read Cam's full column at columbiachronicle.com. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more at ColumbiaChronicle.com. For additional coverage, we are at CC Chronicle on Instagram and Twitter. Chronicle Headlines is made possible by a collaboration with the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground. Under the leadership of Suzanne McBride, Chair of the Communication Department at Columbia College, Chicago. Until next time, I'm your host, Paige Barnes. <laughs>